Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. point that we want to get at here is how this opening that is little a emerges, the little a around which drive circulates. We know what's underneath it, libido, but how does it come about? How does the breast become the partial object of an oral drive? The answer in each drive is always the same, prohibition. The openings around which the drive circulates are usually plugged with stuff. The openings themselves, though, emerge through an incisional process. Think incision like a scalpel that cuts into the skin, known as prohibition. In Lacanian terms, we refer to that as castration. But in each case, we see something similar happening, whether it's orality, anality, scopophilia, the same move is happening. I think it's worth to figure some of this stuff out. So let's try and be clear about this. Take the oral drive. The erogenous zone, the source, is going to be the mouth, lips, teeth. The in-out operation or the aim of the drive that comes out, circles around an object, and then returns is for the oral drive, some version of to suck. The real object of the drive, little a, is the breast. The imaginary object that plugs the hole where the prohibited breast used to be could be anything. The drive is indifferent. Even Freud figured this out right out of the gates. Drives go wherever the hell they find satisfaction. They'll glom on to anything. X, Y, Z, you name it. The cigarette is a classic example. It's a metonymic stand-in for a more primitive lost object, which in this case would be the breast that is prohibited through the process of weaning, which is why it was so awkward when your mom showed up and wanted you to suckle. I would suggest that we can split this out pretty nicely and cleanly by the addition of another thing. Little a is not an imaginary object. The cigarette in many ways is an imaginary object. It's something that you imagine and have put in the place of something that is gone something that has been removed and is no longer there. The cigarette here is what plugs the hole left by the weaning process that stripped you of your source of nourishment in the case of the breast. Here's how I would phrase these. The imaginary objects that plug the hole around which a drive circulates they're all bound up with logics of having. 
It's about stuff you can have. Cigarettes. Or maybe you can't have those. Maybe you shouldn't have those. And that might be all the reason more why you get off on them. Having, though, is the logic of the imaginary object that plugs the hole, left behind by a prohibitive process, a proto-castrative process known as weaning. At the level of objea, though, it's not about having. It's about being. And this is a classic Lacanian dialectic that I want you to have in mind. It's not between appearance and being, the philosophical distinction that Lacan works. It's at the level of having versus being. These are his two big ontological buckets. And you see this when he talks about the phallus, for instance, not the oral drive, not the anal drive, but like you talk about the phallic drive. Is it better to have the phallus or be the phallus? These are questions, questions that we've addressed elsewhere. I'm not going to spend time on them now, but questions which I'm happy to talk with you about later, post a comment, whatever, I'm happy to reply. Right now, we're just working on the object. All right, anal drive. You know the erogenous zone, anus. The in-out operation has to do with shit. The in-out operation of the anus has to do with whether you hold it in or push it out. The verb, if you want, for the anal drive is to shit. And like all drives, it would have an active, reflexive, and passive voice. You get off on shitting on stuff. You get off on shitting on yourself. And you get off most intensely on making others shit on you, the passive voice. Now, I'm using shit here because it's a great one. Because that verb to shit on, it has strayed so far from feces as a literal piece of excrement to just mean giving somebody a hard time. Feces would be the partial object, the real object that is controlled and constrained in many ways prohibited through the process of potty training. Potty training says you don't just get to piss and shit wherever you want. There are proper times and places to potty train. That's how it works. Nevertheless, we find all these other ways to manipulate our shit. Look at all my shit. A great stand-in, metonymic stand-in at the level of an imaginary object that has to do with having more than being for feces would be money. The reason why money is dirty always is because it is fundamentally a stand-in for shit. This is how the objects work. An opening left by the prohibition against pissing and shitting wherever you want, known as potty training. The opening or the loss that potty training conditions becomes a cavity that you can then fill with money. Go ahead, Jason. Hey, I don't want to sidetrack us too much again, but like that's such a different order of sublimation between, say, a lollipop and money, you know, in terms of 
their link to, uh, you know, to an erogenous zone. I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. You know, my reading of Lacan on this point is that you're right. I mean, these are different orders of sublimation, but they proceed by the very same logic of sublimation that Lacan's tracing out in Seminar 7. And it's a highly social normative process whereby obviously things that are acceptable by a community or a collectivity are allowed to stand in for things that are prohibited by that collectivity. As far as Lacan's concerned, the sublimatory process there is always the same. I don't actually see him distinguishing between different types of sublimation at the level of socially appropriate stand-ins for prohibited objects. They're all for him kind of like nasty, shitty experiences that we nevertheless endure in order to get our little kicks off. What he does, however, have is a very strong process of what I would call desublimation. Maybe Les Marcuse uses it, but not with the repressive part on the front. The drive I read as a desublimatory process that works backwards from whatever the social sublimation is, whether it's a lollipop that stands in for the breast or money that stands in for shit. The logic of the drive, as I understand it, is to desublimate and move from those objects that plug the hole around which the drive circulates to have that hole opened up again. Not in order to rediscover the lost breast or in order to somehow like regain your relationship with feces and get off on that. Like I can finally... Um, you know, play with my turds in the bathtub again. That's not what it's about. Opening the hole doesn't allow you to replace lollipop with breast. It instead opens it up so that you can get down into something before the breast, this pure undivided libidinal experience. That's what the drive accesses. And that's why I use the the phrase desublimation. Because as I understand sublimation, this would be a channeling of libidinal energies, which aren't just sexual, they're just desires and impulses to tear shit up into socially acceptable outcomes. So you have a kid who's causing trouble, you give him a drum kit, focus that energy, sublimate it. The drive is a way to desublimate in a sense. So I guess, Jason, my thinking on this is first, I don't quite see the distinction between sublimatory processes that would result in a lollipop for a breast versus money for shit. But I say that with that original caveat, I don't work with patients and I know you do. And word on the street is you're pretty damn good at it. So I imagine, this is Dr. Jason Childs, by the way, who's, who's chiming in here. I imagine that, that you have seen this before and knowing you, I doubt your question came from nothing. So do you want to add to this and explain how you see it differently and how these sublimatory processes would be of different qualities? Lollipop money? I'm trying to think about it because I I, I thought your answer about desublimation actually made a lot of sense. Um, 
And you, you know the passage. Uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, I was going to say, like, perhaps I can think about it and we can maybe return to it because I don't want to sort of, you know, bring things um, to a halt. I suppose the one thing I would say is that, I, I mean, if I think of these as belonging to different orders of sublimation, it's that, I mean, the experience of a lollipop is actually firmly anchored in a, in a, um, in your mouth, right? Um, but your experience of money isn't necessarily connected to sort of gut perturbations or something like that. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I was thinking something similar when I was thinking about like, could you have an oral drive, the object for which the imaginary object for which, and I'm using imaginary object here, more or less non-technical, but Mm. a car. And the answer is really like, well, probably not because a car does not comport with the erogenous zone of the human mouth, which yeah. things out and in, but it could. And I see what you're saying now, like money and shit are structurally, ontologically, scientifically quite different than lollipop mm. and breast, which are much closer in terms of their affinity and their likeness and their functionality. And I, I don't think that that's irrelevant. And in fact, mm. what I'd like to suggest is that we could make a move here that I think would be helpful. So Lacan really makes a big deal about the indifference of the drive relative to its objects. And that is in Freud as well. The idea mm. is that whatever the hell the drive gloms onto it retroactively associates with the satisfaction it receives and says, okay, next time I feel that thrust or that energy that needs to be discharged in the Freudian sense, I'm going to go look for an object like that. But if we read this a little more closely to the human form, I would say that there are some guardrails on this indifference. The vicissitudes of the drive, the variability that a drive can allow for in terms of object selection, I think it's much smarter than what we have from Lacan and Freud on this to think very closely about the connection between the object and the source. The thing that we, um, that, that brings us drive satisfaction when we mess with it, circle around it and the source of that drive in whatever mouth on the human body it came from. I think the smart move here that you're suggesting is to say that we're not completely indifferent in object choice. It doesn't mean that it's determined, predetermined, but it does mean that there is the constraint put on object choice by the structure of the human body. The erogenous zone of the mouth is only so big. And it doesn't mean that a car can't become the object around which your oral drive circulates. It just means that it's less likely to become the object around which your drive circulates than a lollipop. Because lollipops mm. fit more than cars in your mouth. 
So maybe what we're working with here is like um, like a, a spectrum of probability where like it would be like, okay, so the distance between feces and money is like this. The distance between breast and lollipop is like this. And car would be mm. way the fuck out here. So you could have this like spectrum of likely objects that a drive might have. So it's not purely indifferent to objects. You see, you can see why Lacan wants it to be. Lacan really wants to make this about the object is not a thing. It's an opening. You can put anything you want in there. At root though, it's this opening. And I get what he's saying. And that's important to note conceptually what he's doing. But practically speaking, and that's really how we're speaking about this is practically. I think you're right that there would be an order of magnitude or likelihood between the lollipop and the car relative to an oral drive. Doesn't mean car is impossible. It means it's less likely to emerge in analysis and life as an object for orality. Mm-hmm. How does that sit? Um. It sits really well. And yet, you know, I mean, when I think about anality, that is an area where we, where there is a greater range of, um, let's say, metaphorizability or something like that. You know, uh, it just seems like always when we talk about this, in the examples we give of objects of the oral drive, they are, they're not cars, usually. You know, they're usually the cigarette, the bit fingernail, um, you know, all that stuff. Whereas when we talk about anality, we're much more apt to talk about things like gift giving, um, stuff like that, or money. Yeah, 100%. Um, which, which, yeah, which still seems to have um, relative, like, it seems to have departed from a sort of biological reading of erogenous zones um in a in a much more significant way than you know typically cited oral objects brilliant yeah and it, it, you know it okay so if we add one more element it could just be the final confusion that brings clarity to this matter there could be in terms of like mouth relative to anus some truth to the fact that the anus is almost always covered up. And I know mm. it's because, right, there's this movement where you, you, put, you lay on your back and you throw your ass up in the air and you get a sunburn on your, on your lower O-ring. Uh, this kind of like perennium tanning stuff, which of course I live in San Francisco in this big city and all of a sudden it doesn't work. I don't have a yard that would allow me to expose my anus. In my town, you can do a lot of anus exposing. In fact, the only rule is you have to have a newspaper with you so that if you get on the bus, your bare anus can't touch the seat. You got to put the newspaper underneath your ass. Otherwise, you're good to go. You can, I mean, so truth be told, I mean, I could be tanning my anus right now. Um, it's a little cloudy, but it, it could still work. But there's something about sociality here that might be important. The reason why maybe we have allow so many um, polymorphous substitutions for shit in a way that we don't with orality could be due to the fact that the mouth is always on display 
and the variations of things that we do with our mouth are fairly public. In fact, it's one of the original public acts, which is to speak. Shitting and the orifice that does that, the operative organ or site that does the shitting, that's a concealed thing. And what do we know about things that get repressed, concealed, socially or otherwise? They transmutate into all sorts of strange ways in a way that the rails of society might not allow otherwise. Um, so I was almost tempted to make a bad joke about creativity and art relative to shit, because this is also how Lacan sees painting. Painting, he says, is just like, all you're doing is looking at somebody who, who took some canvas and wiped their ass with it. He's quite literal about this. What we're doing when we observe a painting is we are enjoying watching somebody put their finger in shit and then wipe it on a page. It's a startling moment. I think it's in seminars 11 or 10. I forget which one. It was just, just before because we, we made a fuss of it. It was kind of wild. But the, I'll skip the bad joke about creativity. Um, but just to say that it may make sense that at the level of anality, we would have a much more variable field of substitute objects because the erogenous zone to which feces is connected is itself a socially repressed zone, maybe more so, I would argue more so mm. than the mouth by the sheer fact of display. Mm. I don't know. Thank you for that. Right on, man. I'm, I'm just thinking aloud here. So by all means, holler about this because um, I'm sure we're all going to have some thoughts about this in the coming days. Um, yeah. Uh, Cody, what's up? Hey, Sam, how's it going? It's good to see you. I'm good, good to be here. You. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me like we have we have series, lots of series, metonymic substitutions, like free associations, if we think back to uh, the dynamics of transference essay by Freud. Uh, you know, we're somehow engaged in seriality, and it seems like the drive um, almost is, is oddly involved in seriality in the sense that it leads us back to this primordial lack. Um, I'm curious if you can say more about that. Is it leading us to a more intractable contradiction, which would be libido? Um, yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> yes. And I like this question because it is um, a waypoint for us coming up and we are going to answer it. Right now, we're just carving out the pieces and the seriality part is, is interesting. And I'm, I always hesitate around seriality with Lacan because he's not a chronological thinker. His thought, his thought does not work chronologically, which is why he always chafes at developmental talk, at stage talk. Like It's not like the oral stage, however plastic it may be, conditions the anal stage, conditions the phallic, conditions the stopic. It's not like that. He doesn't accept that shit. He is more of a wormhole thinker. He sees things as connecting across lines. So the scopic drive has more to do with the anal drive than it does with the phallic, I would argue. Um, and you could say that the invocatory drive has more to do with the oral drive than it does with the scopic in terms of like flow and conceptuality. Lacan makes a similar argument in his seminar on anxiety that you can connect these um, these, these drives in these ways. Um, but seriality is tough because I don't want to suggest that libido 
breast, cigarette, and then you then have to march your way back. But it's tough not to talk that way. Even if I want us to think differently, think more retroactively. If there's seriality in Lacan, it's a retroactive seriality is what I would suggest. And what I mean by that is that it's not Lacan who figures this out. I mean, it's actually the Romans who make a big deal out of this. The site of wisdom and learning in antiquity, for the Greeks, it was youth. The beauty of youth could drive somebody to learn a lot. Plato, Socrates, Phaedrus, boys, Alcibiades, he's a good one. You want an example of the drive in action? Check out Alcibiades, man. Alcibiades in the symposium, showing up drunk at the party. Alcibiades, according to Lacan in the subversion essay, is not neurotic. Bruce Fink even suggests Alcibiades might just be beyond desire. His pure desire may in fact put him on the path of the drive. Alcibiades could be a figure of the drive, this beautiful, renowned soldier, blah, blah, blah. The Romans, though, they put wisdom in old folk because it was at the end of the day, at the end of the life, that you can look back and tell a coherent story about what happened that day or in your life. It's in hindsight that our vision is 2020. The owl of Minerva for Hegel always takes flight at dusk. Owls are symbols of wisdom, not because they can turn their heads around and all this kind of shit, not because they're always trying to figure out how many licks it takes to get to the center of a lollipop. Owls are symbols of wisdom because they take flight at night after the doings of the day are done. It's in looking back retrospectively that we're able to make sense. Kierkegaard understood this too. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. It's the basic dilemma of existentialism, second only to the fact that no one can take a bath for you, is the truth that life has to be lived forward, but can only be understood backward. Isn't this the very original graph that gives us the graph of desire for Lacan? The same thing happens here. So what I would suggest is that logics of seriality are retroactive. It's at the end of the sentence, at the end of the book, at the end of the movie, when it turns out that he's been dead the whole time. That's the reason he couldn't, they couldn't see him. He was dead. It's in hindsight that we can string all of these events together into a narrative. Now, why am I bringing this up right now? It's not just to respond to Cody's smart question here. It's to suggest that this is also fundamental to psychoanalytic theory and technique. Retroaction was big for Freud, and Lacan had an even bigger version of it. Part of what Lacan is doing in the 50s when he's trying to lay out the program of psychoanalysis that we inherit from Freud is a theory of retroactivity, where in speech that is present, we're able to reach back and come to terms with events in our past, such that they no longer are controlling our everyday life, but instead are resubjectivized as our history. The past is transformed into our history by present speech. That is a retroactive enterprise that assigns a certain element of seriality. I was this in order to become what I am now. 
And we haven't even gotten into Lacan's future anterior tense, the will have been part of analysis. Just at the simple relationship between past and present, seriality is not, in other words, some chronological thing. One to two to three to four and five, here I am in analysis. The one is analysis marching its way back through speech into re-territorializations of the past such that they become your history. This is why I think self-compassion is so important to what happens in analytic experience and why regret really doesn't have much place in what Lacan is talking about here. Why would I regret what happened to me or what I did except if I don't like the person that I've become. A compassionate relationship to self in the midst of and at the end of analysis is one without regrets. I was this in order to become who I am now and I rather like this motherfucker. But that element of seriality, I just wanna emphasize again, has a logical sense of time, not a chronological sense of time. And the word I used earlier was chirotic sense of time from the Greek kairos. It's about wormholes connecting things. And I want that logic to intersect with what we're doing with the drive. There is a retroactive element to the drive that we have not discussed yet. That's why, Cody, I'm saying this is a waypoint that we're going to get to. But I want that element of seriality to the extent that we even admit it to always be tinged with hindsight, with retrospection. Because I think that jibes with analysis and I think that it makes a lot of sense for what we're doing with the drive. But we're not there yet. Um, listen, we could go on listing drives. We could do the scopic, we could do the invocatory, and that's not all. Here are some that Lacan also throws out but does not theorize. The penile groove is an erogenous zone, as you know, but it is also the source of a drive. The vagina, erogenous zone, also the source of a drive. The belly button, respiratory erogeneity, the vascular fact of humanity, we breathe, also an erogenous zone. You want some more partial objects beyond breast, shit, gaze, and voice? Here are some, again, straight from Lacan. Urinary flow. Phoneme, Mamilla, the nothing. You heard me say earlier that what enables this shift from objects little a to specular images, imaginary fixations from breast to cigarette, to stick with an example, is prohibition. Life in many ways, earlier more so, is a rolling series of normative developmental prohibitions, which result in losses, which generate experiences of lacks, which invite plugs, plugs from the world that we might just drop in. What happens in this process known as growing up is basically our lives become a proliferation of no things. 
things that used to be okay that are now placed behind an X. The origin of the thing, which is nothing, is the production of no things, extending from the no of the father all the way through the rest. And our point here is prior to that even. If you wanted to assign a stage to this, the name of the father is properly in the phallic stage. But if you're running stages, anality would be before that, would be before that, orality before that. I'm not comfortable with the stage talk, but if you're going to run it, libido even before that, sexuation occurring before that, what about the loss of the placenta? There are all these prohibitions and losses that are occurring before the paternal figure shows up and says no, inaugurating the castrative process of alienation whereby a subject becomes in the symbolic. Birth, the placenta, sexuation, the libido, weaning, the breast, potty training, feces, language acquisition. What exactly is prohibited by the name of the father? What's prohibited is any continuation of life without prohibition. But you could also say the cry. You don't get to cry anymore. Now you have to use your big boy words. In other words, if there were a phallic drive, and I'm not sure there is, its partial object might be your cry. Not my cry, your cry. Beyond that, though, of course, would be libido, same as the rest. What I'm trying to get at here is a process whereby the needs of the infant or the child are increasingly subjected to and thus barred by and within the field of the other, the big other. That's what's happening here. The production of the drive has to do with the barring of the subject of pure need, the infant. Need, my needs are constantly being barred, constrained, and subordinated to your demands. That's where this process starts. The result is my being as a living subject is just pocked with holes, missing parts, openings that I'm looking for something to fill. All of these are structured atop the other's demand. Think about this. Orality. The baby demands something from the big other. But the, de the meeting of this demand is subject to the interpretations of the big other. That's what the lower part of the graph of desire shows, especially in its early formative stages. Demand is need that is expressed in language. But the translation of a child or a baby's cry into a let's feed the baby is something that is happening strictly at the level of big A, of the big other. That's why if you look in the lower left-hand circle of the graph of desire, you see signified according to the big other. That's the interpretive work that the parent or primary caregiver does of translating an indecipherable cry into a request or a demand for a blanket. My point here is that, yeah, the kid is the one doing the demanding there, but the activity and the effect of that demand is determined exclusively by the big other. 
Anality, it's more extreme. Now it's the big other demanding something of the child. So in other words, still calling the shots. We could go on and talk about the phallic moment in the Lacanian sense of the Oedipal phase, his reading of that with the paternal function. Desire gets started here, but what we know about desire is that it's always someone else's. My desire for you causes me to fantasize about other things that you might want instead of me so that I can identify with them in order to get my desire for you met. And at the end of the day, I just find myself desiring as you. My desire for you provokes my imagination of your desire, which in turn trains me to desire just like you. Now, this isn't that series of talks. I can point you in that direction if you want, but my point is the same. Morality, anality, phallic stage, if you will. What we see there is the infant as a subject of need being barred and subordinated to the demands of the big other. Here's the deal. The problem with this is that the object cause of my desire, lack, little a, gets confused with the object evoked and prohibited by the other's demand. And I'll say it again because it's important here. The object cause of my desire, which is the experience of lack, gets confused with what it is I imagine you're demanding of me. It's in the drive beyond the fundamental fantasy, the traversing of the fantasy, that we see that confusion sorted out. Where I'm able to experience my lack as my lack, apart from what I imagine you to demand and desire. Again, we'll come to that. You hear talk in these circles about the fundamental fantasy. This is the fundamental fantasy. The fundamental fantasy is that we wind up envisioning the big other and all of its stand-ins from cops to daddies as whole, complete, full, omniscient, and thus always able to issue demands always able to tell us what's needed at any given time, always able, if you want to be a little playful, to tell us what we want to hear. And I want you to hear it both ways. In some sense, what we're saying is, tell me what I'm supposed to want. At the end of Seminar 11, this is also what Lacan says he hears when the Analyzan first walks in. Fix me. I know, you know, what's up with me. You're the doctor. Fix me. I demand that you fix me. The basic fantasy, the mathem of fantasy, split subject lozenge little a, is structured around our assumption that the other can issue demands because they know what they want. 
And that is a defense against the harsher truth, which is that they don't know what they want. They're as fucked up as we are. And instead of demanding what they are is in fact desirous. I live my life according to what I imagine you're demanding of me because that feels more comfortable than dealing with the fact that you, like me, don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's scary as hell. There are other reasons why this is a barrier, not least of which we'll come to when we talk about Lacan's essay on the drive next time on anxiety. But what we get at the level of fundamental fantasy is effectively two options. And if you look at the graph of desire, this becomes pretty clear. Desire passes into fantasy. You can see it in the graph of desire and you can go right or left. If you go left, you return down to the signified according to the big other. Big other as full, as the treasure trove, the one with all the answers. This is a fantasy that is fundamentally about the other as omniscient, as capable of issuing demands. What we know, though, is that if you just keep telling the big other to tell you what to do, eventually what they're going to say is, show me you're castrated. Show me you've been circumcised. The bottom barrel of demand in this regressive cycle, where instead of acknowledging the fact that nobody else knows better than you, is anxiety. What you try to avoid by returning to the idea of an other who is whole, in other words, not lacking, um, comes back to you in the end anyway, because the final demand is always show me that you're castrated. This was one of the central topics in our reading of Seminar 10. Um, it's, you can follow that link in our link tree and you can, you can get those lectures if you want them. The other option though at fantasy is to turn right if you're looking at the graph of desire up to signifiers of the lack in the other. You risk anxiety, but you also find yourself with an opportunity structure to pursue something else, something beyond fantasy. And the right turn out of there is precisely what leads you to the drive. When the demanding other prevails, and even when the desirous other prevails, the subject of the drive is always subordinate, suppressed. Bruce Fink is great on this point at the end of his clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. The process of demand to desire here shows that a demanding other suppresses the subject of the drive as much as, but in different ways, as a desirous other. The goal is to flip that, metaphorically speaking, so that the object cause of my desire can also be part and parcel of what I do as a subject of the drive. This is going to be one next week as well. If there is a key question regarding the object of the drive, which is ostensibly what we've been talking about here, this object that is in fact an opening, it's how do you get from an experience of the object as someone else's demand to an experience of the object as my 
lack. To reclaim from this fantasy of life pegged on what we imagine the other to be demanding, something more akin to a lack that is uniquely mine. This is that desublimation that I was talking about here, a shift from these imaginary objects, cigarettes, lollipops, cars, money, and the like, back to, if we can use that chronological term, back to something that can be experienced as my lack, which is not a thing in the world, but instead an opening into which I've been shoving things all these years. This is how we read the mathema of the drive. And this will be my final point today. The mathema of the drive looks a hell of a lot like that of fantasy. There is a split subject, lozenge, living their life in relation to little a in the case of fantasy, which is what I imagine other people to want, and big D, demand, societal demands in the case of the drive. It's no coincidence that the mathema of fantasy looks a lot like the mathema of the drive because they're constantly supplanting each other. And in the best case scenario, the traversing of the mathema of fantasy would leave you with that of the drive. Now, lots has been said about the mathema of fantasy, not as much about the mathema of the drive. Let me tell you where I think we are with this. Once the subject and the other have faded out, what's left in the mathema of the drive is an opening rim-like structure that is crucially just the lozenge. And I want you to know that this has been in plain sight in Lacan's work from the start. Bruce's translation of a creep, page 692. You don't need to have the book in front of you. I'll read it. The drive is what becomes of demand when the subject vanishes from it. Don't forget that barred subject in the mathem of the drive is a vanishing subject, aphanesis. It goes without saying that demand also disappears, except that the cut remains. Big D goes away, just as split subject goes away. What's left is the cut, here represented by the lozenge. For the latter remains present in what distinguishes the drive from the organic function it inhabits, namely its grammatical artifice, so manifest in the reversals of its articulation with respect to both source and object. The mathem of the drive allows the demands of others and the split subject to fade away so that what's left when the drive is operational is the cut, the opening, the diamond itself, the lozenge itself. And notice how Lacan moves from here to an almost reciprocal structural relation between the object of the drive and its source. I said this before, I'll say it again. The object of the drive and its source are openings with rim-like structures. Little a marks an opening, not truly an object. It's a portal, the same way your mouth is a portal. 
there is a secret, and I would say should be obvious affinity between the object of the drive and its source. The object of the drive is not the cigarette. It's the operationalization of the mouth. That's again why Lacan has the example of going to a restaurant and ordering food. The drive is at work when you order the food as well as when you consume what arrives 20 minutes later. It is the in-out operation of an erogenous zone that shows the drive at work. And I would just say that it's so relevant to our purposes that it's very tempting to even suggest that what we have here in this diagram of the drive are two lozenges atop each other, interfacing, one of which points to the opening that is objea, the other of which points to the opening that is the erogenous zone, object of the drive and source of the drive. These are not just openings. I wanna emphasize this. They are functional rims operationalizable. With the exception of the outer ear, these are erogenous zones that open and close, almost in a pulse-like function, almost like the unconscious. These openings with rim-like structures pervade objects and sources of the drive. And it's here that we get our first clue to drive satisfaction. Now this may sound like a wild ride, but we are orienting ourselves towards that beyond of analysis and that experience of drive satisfaction. It's gonna be our centerpiece next week, but even here as we're talking about the object qua opening and the source qua opening, we get a taste, a hint, a clue as to what drive satisfaction is about. Drive satisfaction, what feels good when the drive is at work, and this may be the test as to whether you are operationalizing yours, is not when you secure or access an object, something, a cigarette, lollipop, whatever, real, symbolic, imaginary, or otherwise. It is instead this circling around of something, this circuitous, movement where the aim comes out, circles around, and then returns back to the source. It emerges from one opening and flits around another. Crucial. The drive emerges from one of many mouths on the human body, flits around another opening in human experience in order to then return back to that mouth. It's, I think, the foundational insight into how the drive works. Two openings. In this sense, the object of the drive is also that of psychoanalysis itself. Remember, psychoanalysis is a science, but it's not concerned with objects. Objectivity is not the logic of psychoanalysis. Objectality is. It's not concerned with objects, but with openings, causes. Here again, we see this resonance 
between the openings of the source and the object of the drive and the very objective of psychoanalytic thought itself. Think about it this way. These operative openings that center psychoanalysis, but also that animate the drives, each of the four basic drives has an opening in it. The operation of the mouth at the level of ordering food and then consuming, there's an out of ordering and an in of consuming. Anality, you can withhold shit or squeeze it out. There's an out and an in. And the source is what manages what comes in and what goes out. This in-out process, opening, closing, is what the drive looks like when it's operating. It's an opening, closing, opening, closing, in-out, in-out. The scopic drive. Now, you might say the object of the scopic drive is the gaze. I don't think so. The object of the scopic drive is, in fact, the gap between the eye that sees and the gaze that might look back. It's the gap between my eye and the computer in front of me. The opening, if you will, between the eye and the gaze is in fact the object of the scopic drive, not the gaze. The invocatory drive, same logic. It's the distance between the voice that cries and the ear that hears. And think about the intimacy of speaking and hearing. What you're hearing right now, and all the more so if we were here in person, is coming from inside my body. This voice is starting right about here. It comes from inside me and goes out. And where does it go? Even in this mediated format, what you're hearing right now is entering your outer ear and into you. Speech is like sex in that it is extremely intimate because insides interact. My voice leaves the interior of my body in order to enter yours and vice versa. My point here is that each of the drives has this as an opening between two in-out structures. Can I do a clarification question? Yep. So um, I guess like when people like Zizek talk about, um, um, you know, with gays and whatnot and whatnot, I, I, and just what you're saying, I just want to clarify a little bit. So like in um, Psycho, when the house is looking back and, and the anxiety that might cause or like, uh, I guess what is the one with the can uh, on the water? So um, uh, I, I just... I wasn't quite understanding like the distance thing that you're talking about. Could you explain that a little bit for, in contrast to um, this, uh, some of the analysis, you know, like again with the psycho, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So in seminar 11, this is what I'm referring to, um, you know, Hitchcock aside um, in seminar 11, there is that passage with the tuna can kind of bobbing around. Um, Lacan makes as much to do about the gaze that the can embodies. And a gaze, by the way, is, doesn't mean that something's looking back at you. The gaze are, is all of the positions in your umwelt, in the world around you, in your environment, from which you could be seen. 
So the panoptic tradition from Bentham to Foucault just realized the truth of all this, that you can put a prison tower in the middle of the prison yard with mirrored windows and whether there's anybody up there or not, the logic of the gaze is enough to discipline the prisoners because it's the potential to be watched that disciplines us more than the actual fact of a prison guard staring at you. We'd oh, okay, so it's the, the, the yeah. so it's this panopticon idea is what they're getting at with the Lacan's getting at with with the with it. The gaze is closely related to what Bentham to Foucault is doing with panopticon. I bring it up as another point of reference because some folks are more steeped in that tradition. Right. And read this section of seminar eleven, but if you read eleven carefully, Lacan has a lot to say about the gaze that that tuna can has as it's bobbing around in the ocean. But he also has a lot to say about the eye, the eye that sees versus the gaze from which you could be seen, but might not be. And could you say a little more about that? That's what the, uh, you flesh out a little more the, the eye that's seeing. Yeah. Just hang on a second. Just hang on a second. This is a good question that you've asked. And I imagine it's one that other people have too. Lacan in these sections is also going to talk about the gap between the eye and the gaze. And what I'm suggesting is that in our theorization of the scopic drive, a more productive move than reading the partial object as the gaze is to instead read it as the gap between my eye and the laptop that may be staring back at me or the the plant up on the shelf or the tuna can out there. What I'm trying to suggest is that the object of the drive is always gonna be an opening and just identifying it with the gaze as a capacity to be watched is insufficient. It doesn't comport with the theory. The consistency of drive theory in Lacan is going to position the partial object, the little a that animates the scopic drive, not in the gaze and not in the eye, but in the differential relationship between them. And I do believe that that is supported in seminar 11. Okay. Now please follow up because you've got a really good fish on the line here, so to speak. Um, I don't know if you muted yourself. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Did, did you? I, I did want to take time. Did you say you want to discuss this a little more, or I didn't quite understand what you what you were saying? Yeah, I was saying go ahead and follow up because I asked you to pause for a second while I finished answering the first part. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, it's obvious when you're talking about like the the mouth, right? Because like things going in and things going out and and whatnot, and and the um, uh, breathing and eating and the mother's nipple and, and things like that. Um, I guess the the eye as a parallel uh, with the in and out, I'm missing part of the subtlety of your argument. About the in and out? Um, I th- right, you were, you, were, you, were, you were take talking about, I know you're saying so many interesting things, I'm just trying to get a sense of it. So like kind of the, um, you used, well, okay, earlier we started with the thrust. I was looking at your diagram and, and then you talked about like, um, you're interested archery and like kind of the arrow that you shoot up in the air and comes down. And so it's like, you know, it's, I'm still processing a lot of things you were saying, but I guess I'm just trying to think of how they're the equivalency. And then I was just thinking back to, I remember, you know, one of your classes and I was just wondering, like when people talk about like in the common public, let's say some people are educated, they might say, Oh, going back to Freud, one can sort of see this, but it's like an overly stated thing 
but I remember you were talking about like with like say like people with eating disorders that it's very serious this issue say with the mouth and that so that the like all the Kenyan psychoanalysts could really help uh, kind of going in dialogue with the person as opposed to saying oh there's something to it but it's sort of like a big overgeneralization and like kind of it's like uh so so we need to take this stuff very seriously because I remember you were saying that um you know obviously we have a challenge with eating disorders or in a culture um so so that it's important to really hone in on these things and and point it out to to clients but then i guess the the other thing i was just saying like the um uh oh okay i guess like i'm i'm trying to remember someone like Bataille. i know he has the thing with the eye but you're saying i i see it so much with the mouth but the eye seems a little more um uh like we don't like I mean, obviously, we open our eyes to look at things and close our eyelids, but we don't physically like poke like something into our eyes and then take it out. So it's just it trying to okay. with, with the literalness of that. Yep, that's important. The experience of the sense of vision is very different from that of hearing. Um, part of the reason why objectifications usually proceed through sight and rather than sound is because there is a kind of distance already built in to sight. What I see on the inside of me, so to speak, is not what is actually before me. So when I look at the plant across the desk from me, that plant does not enter my body, right? There's a representation of the plant that then pops up for me. Um, And it's different with hearing. When I speak and you listen or when you speak and I listen and we're together, we are interpenetrating each other. Your voice actually enters my body when you're talking and vice versa. Not the same when you look at me and I look back at you. So there is a different logic of interiority at the level of hearing and seeing. Interesting. So this goes back to like early philosophical work about like the primary, what they call primary things um, versus like like um, with color or something like that. That's like a secondary phenomenon. I forget how you call that a philosophy. It could, it could, it could, if you want, if you wanted to, if you wanted to make that move from Plato forward, you can, you can work it that way. But I want to suggest though, that because an eyelid can be closed or opened, it establishes an interior and an exterior. And might this also be what's different between the eye and the ear again, is that the ear can't be closed in a way that the eye can. So the intimacy that hearing allows is at some level unstoppable. And yet the distantiality that vision allows can be easily stopped by simply closing your eyes. And I want to just leave it at that because we've got about three minutes left and I want to be respectful of folks' time here. Um, But I don't want to end with much more than that except a final image. I would like to suggest that the drive of drives, the primary drive, and I'm just throwing this out there. It's just a thought. It could be completely incorrect. I would like to suggest that there is some truth to what Lacan says in the subversion of the subject essay about respiratory erogeneity, that breathing, breathing may be the site of a drive, perhaps called the respiratory drive, that may be not just one drive, another in the list, but perhaps the basic model of the drive itself. 
is that of breathing. And so I thought the other day about an image of this that might work. And I'm walking along and this little eight-year-old, my little eight-year-old likes chewing gum and she blew a bubble, popped it and drew the gum back in, chewed it again and blew a bubble again. Now, look at the diagram in front of you. Turn your laptop on the side. Rotate this thing so that it's sideways, on its side. There's the mouth with a bubble being blown out. The final image for today is that of a bubble blown while chewing gum. And the whole process of that where you inspire, you blow into using your tongue and your mouth and your teeth to shape this thing that you press out into only in order to have it pop and be sucked back in. Breathing is not so different from this, but with the bubble, you actually get to see an image of this. And if there would be an imaginary object for this bubble, it may very well be the caption box beneath your Instagram post. It may very well be that little bubble or that cloud that comes out of the character's mouth into which the signifier is put. Now you see why I would want to have perhaps a theory of respiratory erogeneity and a respiratory drive that may be primal not just because my kid likes to chew gum, but because I think there's something to do here with the relationship between the signifier, sexuality, death, where we started, that may just provide us, however slight, with an opening into which we might be able to access this pure, undivided life, where it all begins, according to Lacan. What we have now are the basic structures of the drive. We have the basic types of the drive in front of us. And we have, for lack of a better term, a kind of seriality here. We're trying to get somewhere with the drive. We know it's important. We're learning how it works. Next time, what I wanna focus on is how it plays out in analysis and what might even be past the drive. I don't just want to figure out finally what drive satisfaction is relative to enjoyment. I want to touch on this other term, which is truly where Lacan ends seminar 11. It's on love. The notion of limitless love that would be activated by the desire of the analyst. The analyst's desire for what Lacan in the final page of seminar 11 calls absolute difference. I think there's something there. But in keeping with how we do things here, after lots of heavy lifting, it's fun to speculate. And that's really where I'm at. Respiratory drive, maybe. Love beyond the drive, maybe. To be a Lacanian is to always be living like this. And I think it's important that we end there. I'll stick around for additional questions if you've got them. Um, but otherwise I'm gonna hit pause on the recording so that we can, uh, have a little more um, a little more free play and you won't feel 
so pressured if you do feel pressured. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.